Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the international affairs, foreign policy, and global development community, and world news aficionados of all stripes. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. The American foreign policy tradition, at least in my lifetime, has been dominated by just a few ideologies, isms, if you will. This includes the neoconservatism of the Reagan and George W. Bush eras and the liberal internationalism of the Clinton and Obama administrations. Of course, not every foreign policy decision neatly fits into these categories, but it is fair to say that by and large, these have been the two overriding foreign policy outlooks of the last 30 or 40 years of American history. My guest today, Robert Wright, has helped to introduce a new kind of intellectual tradition to the public square. He calls it progressive realism. And we kick off this conversation going through some of the key principles of a progressive realist U.S. foreign policy. We then discuss how this ideology might be applied to some key foreign policy challenges, including competition with China and conflict in the Middle East. Robert Wright is the author of several books, including a book we reference in this conversation called Non-Zero. He runs a fantastic newsletter of the same name, and it was an edition of that newsletter that inspired me to reach out to him for this conversation. I'll post a link to his Non-Zero newsletter in the description field of this podcast episode. I will also post a link to a December Washington Post op-ed that we reference throughout this conversation in which Robert Wright sketches out key concepts of a progressive realist foreign policy. So I'd be curious to learn what you think of this episode and if this is an ideology, a foreign policy outlook that resonates with you. Uh, let me know. I'd love to hear from you. You can hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or send me an email using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. For now, here is my conversation with Robert Wright. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. You know, in the Washington Post piece, I I did list four kind of, you know, hallmarks, I guess, of a progressive realist. I have, I have added to that list in other places, but in the Post piece, I mentioned, first of all, strategic humility, meaning an awareness that things can go badly awry when you intervene militarily. Uh, whether directly or by proxy. And, and we have examples of both in fairly recent history. You know, the Iraq invasion didn't go swimmingly. The uh, Syria proxy intervention uh, seems to have, you know, failed to remove Assad from power and, if anything, increased the number of deaths and refugees. You know, Libya Libya didn't, didn't work out well and so on. So, so that's one thing that a progressive realist would emphasize. 
Another one that I mentioned is cognitive empathy, by which I mean not the feel your pain kind of empathy, but just perspective taking, just understanding Mm -hmm. how all the actors that are relevant to a given situation are viewing Mm -hmm. things. Uh, So, for example, when we, you know, kind of got involved in Ukrainian politics during the Obama administration and, uh, you know, from certainly from Putin's point of view, played a role in deposing uh, a democratically elected president who was pro-Russian, you know, we might have stopped to ask ourselves how how that would, you know, how seriously would Putin take that? Turns out he took it very seriously. And the, the result was uh, a lot of trouble, including uh, Russia taking Crimea and supporting rebels in, in eastern mm-hmm. Ukraine. I would say much the same about NATO expansion earlier. Like another good example is uh, the question of why, if Saddam Hussein did not have weapons of mass destruction, did he not just open up his country to weapons inspectors and avoid being invaded and occupied by the United States? And there's a famous uh, academic article that explains that. I'm blanking on its name, but basically the idea is that you know he was bound by certain you know concepts of rationality that the White House couldn't foresee, couldn't understand, didn't have the empathy to to understand. Yeah, I think that's true. I think first of all, uh, memory being the selective and even constructive thing that it is, there's a tendency these days. Uh, to underestimate the extent to which he did open up to inspectors. He left mm-hmm. them in the country and he he actually, I think, let them in every facility they asked to inspect. In the beginning, he kind of had them cool their heels for a while. Yeah. He also resisted around the margins. He, he didn't let uh, scientists uh, be be taken out of Iraq for interrogation. But, you know, you, you can imagine lots of yeah. reasons for that, uh, you know, including just humiliation and, and, and so on. But mm-hmm. I think that is a good example where, uh, we were eager to take every sign of resistance from him uh, as evidence that he had something to hide. And, and that's a that's a uh, that's a very good example. And another principle you articulate is anti-Manichaeism. What do you mean by that? Manichaeism is the tendency to, um, you know, divide the world into good and evil. Uh, it's, you know, m- maybe in some ways a natural human tendency, but it's certainly, I think, has been more characteristic of American foreign policy than I'd like to see. And I think you're starting to see uh, a, a kind of a new version of it. Uh, the, the the people in, in the Biden administration foreign policy team came out of the box very eager to, to kind of declare a global war on authoritarianism. So I think they're tending to divide the, the world uh, between democracies and, and authoritarian countries. Uh, which would actually be more defensible if they did a better job of it. For example, didn't overlook uh, uh, authoritarian countries who, because they're our allies, we don't complain about, like uh, you know Saudi Arabia and so on. Um, the uh, but 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 in general, to uh, to see yourself uh, as in a war, uh, a kind of a global war against evil, um, is I, I think has gotten us into a lot of trouble. It's it's a little tied in with American exceptionalism, you know, the idea of of uh, that America is kind of uniquely good, and it's our mission to uh, to make the the rest of the world uh, as good as we are. Uh, but but yeah, that is one of the things I associated with uh, with uh, progressive realism, um, you know, a, a resistance to that kind of dualistic mm-hmm. and somewhat melodramatic view of the world. 
I think um, Obama was pretty good on that score, at least obviously compared to his predecessor, who was, you know, very firmly divided the world into good and evil, declared a war on evil. Yeah, Bush actually, you know, talked about an axis of evil and really thought about the world in those terms. And you, you see some of the damage that can do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I agree that Obama was better. I, I, in the end, I don't think he had a really well-formed foreign policy philosophy. Um, he had some realist tendencies, but, um, but yeah, certainly compared to Bush, uh, it's, that's not even a close call. Um, the final uh, kind of dimension of progressive realism uh, I, I mentioned in the post piece was respect for international law. Um, lots of people say they're for international law, but in the foreign policy establishment, there are very few people who actually take it seriously as a guiding light. I, I mean, we, we've already mentioned a couple of things the U.S. did that uh, pretty clearly violated international law. The Iraq invasion, clearly the, the, the proxy intervention in Syria, pretty clearly. There's some argument. Uh, a lot of people would say that in Libya, when we, um, you know, we did have the Security Council mandate going in for the humanitarian part of the mission. But then when that morphed into a regime change operation, some people would say at that point you were violating international law. In any event, it, it's, uh, it, it is something that I take very seriously. And it, it's related uh, to something that uh, wasn't one of the four dimensions in the post piece, but I have mentioned it elsewhere. And it was mentioned in the post piece which is um, international governance. And in a way, this is a big, uh, you know, kind of motivating thing for progressive realism is the idea that uh, if we don't get serious about international governance, what's sometimes called global governance, I, I, I use the term international governance partly because sometimes there's regional uh, governance. It's not, not like truly. multilateral cooperation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's funny. It, it's uh, I started using global governance years ago because uh, in part because uh, some people on the right were so freaked out by world government. And, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, world government, I think, is truly misleading. I don't think anybody's thinking about a kind of a centralized, uh, you know, uh, well, you haven't talked to people in the world federalist movement in a long time. Well, actually, didn't <laughs> they? I, I mean, the, the uh, one of the main organizations there, uh, I, I thought, moved a little away from. They, they uh, in know, general have. You're, no, yeah. you're right. You're right. I, I, I gave facetious. a talk there when uh, when John Anderson, the late John Anderson, was president. And, and yeah. there was then a big in-house debate about whether, you know, they were incrementalists or what. But anyway, uh, you know, global gl- world government, of course, spooks mm-hmm. uh, the far right. But so does global governance. Uh, mm-hmm. And in any event, I, I, I think it's kind of misleading. Uh, because, you know, there are important regional forms of yeah. governance, but 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 certainly it's a, a conviction of mine that if if the world doesn't get a lot more serious about, you know, institutionalized international cooperation, we're going to be in, mm-hmm. in trouble. I mean, the, the, the most famous example is climate change, but I think that's kind of the tip of the iceberg. I think yeah. when you think seriously about bioweapons uh, control. Uh, obviously pandemics uh, too, um, but, you know, weapons in space, controlling those, even things like artificial intelligence. If you imagine 
uh, nations developing AI in a context of just fierce international competition with no rules of the road that could get out of hand. Yeah. Human the UN genetic has a, engineering. Yeah, the, the UN is, is working on a killer robots uh, protocols and, and conventions or automated intelligence military purposes. But but no, I, I, I totally you know see what you're saying. If I I don't think of myself as a particularly ideological uh, person, but if I do have a guiding ideology, it is that the world has a suite of problems that require global cooperation to solve and that multilateral cooperation, global governance institutions like the United Nations can be useful to that end. So, yeah. so you, you have me there. Um, I did want to ask you um, about what some real world applications of a progressive realist outlook might entail. There is probably no greater foreign policy challenge than competition between the United States and, and China. And maybe just to like drill down a little bit, we have a situation in Hong Kong right now where mm-hmm. a city, a society that you know just a couple of years ago was a bastion of liberty and, and free speech is now increasingly under you know the repressive control of Chinese authorities. What would a progressive realist do about that situation or propose be American foreign policy regarding Hong Kong? Well, as the term progressive realism suggests, first of all, we would try to be realistic. Uh, You know, we don't have the power to transform China's approach to Hong Kong. Um, And, you know, the the. In general, the, the the emphasis on international cooperation and, and the belief that it really is kind of an existential issue, possibly at a planetary level in the long run, um, you know, leads you to be careful uh, about what you ask of other nations and demand of other nations and so on. I mean, I, I, I think... Uh, you know, with China, let's face, let's face it, there are several there are several areas where we would all, if we could, change things. Uh, there's Xinjiang, you know, the situation with the Uyghurs. Uh, there's the possibility of war with Taiwan. Uh, there's Hong Kong. Um, but I, I don't, you know, it, the, you know, I, I think we have to be honest about the limitations of what we can do there. And, you know, you, you try to make your values clear, but uh, this is, you know, and this has been a source of real tension within the, well, within the foreign policy community to some extent, within the progressive part of the foreign policy community. Um, when, to what extent do you emphasize humanitarian issues in other countries? And I think, you know, one thing that's happened uh, over the past 20 years is we've seen that uh, and and this is, I would say, a, a, a belief of progressive realism is that you have to be wary of the tendency of good intentions here to go awry. The Syrian proxy intervention uh, was justified on largely on humanitarian grounds. I would say that had we and our allies not fueled. Uh, the 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 uh, civil war with via proxy intervention, maybe hundreds of thousands, uh, uh, you know, fewer people would be dead. I don't know, but I I think mm-hmm. uh, something along those lines. I'd say something like that in Libya. So, you know, uh, I think those kinds of solutions in China you have to realistically rule out, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Solutions that forceful, and um, and then and and, and I and I have said I'm not a huge fan of sanctions. 
I, I mean, sanctions almost never work. Right now, they are making people in the following countries suffer. Venezuela, Syria, Iran. Uh, there are there are others. Mm-hmm. And so far as I can tell, they're not doing any good in any of those situations. So I, I just, uh, you know, yeah. I, I would, uh, yeah, I would. I mean, just to maybe like push push you on on this question of of Hong Kong in in particular. I mean, I, I do fear that people discount the potential harm to. Americans should uh, our stance towards that question of liberty, democracy, free speech in Hong Kong be too overly accommodationist? I mean, you saw this incident, was it like in in fall of 2019, uh, in which that NBA coach from the Houston Rockets Mm -hmm. tweeted something about, you know, democracy in Hong Kong. uh, And then you know, the NBA was shut out of China briefly. You know, there was like a a mass protest in China against the Houston Rockets, against the NBA. And, you know, he, he had to censor himself. And you saw that as just like the most high profile example of an American institution uh, with, you know, huge cultural clout self-censoring itself in the face of, you know, what the Chinese thought to be appropriate speech. So in a way you have China's approach to Hong Kong affecting, you know, freedom of speech here in the United States. And that's something that deeply concerns me. And there are other examples of that, you know, in which, you know, institutions and countries with commercial ties to China, you know, censor what they say. Yeah, I mean, that's actually, I wouldn't say that's about Hong Kong per se. I mean, he could have said something about the Uyghurs and just as easily gotten the same blowback, right? Yeah, I mean, th- that's exactly. a generic problem about a, a country with the clout, the commercial clout that China has and wants to use it the way they want to use it. Now, I, I think, you know, so far, it doesn't look like a grave threat to free speech in America uh, for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, by and large, uh, people in his position, that is, you know, kind of corporate types, haven't been, you know, opined about politics as a rule anyway. They generally just kind of figure lay low. So it's not like it's not like that was a major forum for American, you know, uh, debate over um, over issues. Now I, I'm, well, I'm it is now it. though the NBA at least is now you know they're like the you know they're they're leading edge of the Black Lives Matter movement. That's true. That's that's a new thing that that they're doing. Uh, I, I think I, I mean, this is a, this is an issue of generic concern. It's not uh, mm-hmm. it's not about Hong Kong, per se, is what I mean. Yeah. It's it, it, it is it is about China because they're doing it more than others. Um, and, you know, it's a, a I, I don't it's not that easy for me to imagine American government policy solution uh, to that. And, you know, Hollywood's another place where it shows up. Yeah, Uh, I think Hollywood is in a way the biggest, the most concerning arena for this in a way. And even there, I don't exactly consider it existential. Um, I I don't I don't have a solution to that problem. Um, And I don't I don't know what the American government would do about that. Um, You know, as for Hong Kong itself, it's a it's kind of in a twilight area that is to say it was you know it was in in british hands but with a kind of contractual understanding that it would revert to chinese hands and then the 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 terms of the agreement for that conversion have seemed to have been violated by uh china um you know 
I, but realistically, I mean, do you have a plan? I mean, nobody who has a plan. Mm-hmm. I guess the, the thing I'd say is, um, you know, if you believe, as I do, that international cooperation is critical, then, um, you know, then then you prioritize that. You, you don't you don't quit criticizing people for uh, things you disagree mm-hmm. with. On, on the other hand, uh, at the same time, you know, I, I do think I've always thought American leaders should limit their sermonizing tendencies. This goes mm-hmm. back decades. It's just, you know, because uh, I mean, I'll give you an example. You know, at the Anchorage summit, um, you know, Tony yeah. Blinken and Jake this Sullivan. This was the summit. You should just to remind people, this was yeah. the summit uh, between top U.S. foreign policy officials and uh, top Chinese officials that took place in, right. in Alaska. And, yeah. and Blinken and Sullivan said something about, you know, did a little lecturing about respecting the 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 the, the rule of law, you know, internationally. And Chinese officials rightly said, "Are you kidding? Mm-hmm. What, you know, you invaded Iraq." You did this. You did that. I mean, uh, the American government has has paid no consistent attention to the rules. And and, uh, you know, and and this gets, uh, uh, you know, back to cognitive empathy. It would help America to understand the way we are perceived abroad. Mm -hmm. Like many nations, we have a very high opinion of ourselves. But when we when we lecture people, it behooves us to understand how we are being perceived and understanding that uh, their view of us may not be the same as our view of us. And in some cases, their view of us may be more accurate. And, and look, on human rights, when we lecture other countries on human rights, some of them say, we have capital punishment. We think that's like primitive. We don't do that. We don't have the same percentage of our population in prison that you do. And they can go on and on and mm-hmm. on. And, or, or, or we consider health care a right. You don't provide health care. Uh, I'm not saying that any of these would be satisfactory answers when you have a case as extreme as, say, the Uyghurs. But I am saying that uh, whenever we lecture other countries about abiding by the rule of law or their human rights policies, we should be mindful of the way we look um, Mm -hmm. to others. And I think our failure to do that costs us dearly. So I wanted to drill down on this concept of realism, you know, conventional international relations theory. Realism is sort of a way of seeing the world in which power is relative, that one country's gain is automatically another country's loss. It's a very sort of a zero sum outlook on the world. But, uh, you know, I, having read your wonderful book, Non-Zero, which was profoundly influential to me early in my uh, foreign policy career, uh, I know that's not how you see the world. So can you just kind of explain what you mean by realism? Yeah, so realism, it it has both a descriptive side and a prescriptive side, Uh, you know, and it's unusual. Not all not all ideologies have official descriptions of the world and not all descriptive international relations, uh, you know, schools of thought are associated with prescriptive uh, views. But in the case of realism, there is both. And first of all, I'd say that the, the part of realism that I most identify with, uh, the, you know, and, and, I, and I certainly don't identify wholly with conservative realism, but the, but the part of it I identify with uh, is more on the prescriptive side. I mean, uh, uh, not so much on the descriptive side. Uh, and on the prescriptive side, there are very big differences. I mean, conservative realists don't 
uh, emphasize developing international uh, governance to the extent that I do, or respect for international law, maybe. And 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 actually, that speaks to your question. The reason I think international governance is critical is that relations are getting more non-zero sum among nations. You know, climate change is a non-zero sum game. It, it can get worse for all of us or better depending on how we play the game. Same with nuclear arms control. Same with all kinds of things. Same with health problems like pandemics, biological weapons control, and and so on. And uh, my belief is that uh, for that reason, even if you focus on national interest, okay, as as realists uh, uh, of uh, on the right tend to do, you will still believe that we need need to do more in the way of international governance because, you know, the whole. Uh, definition of a non-zero-sum situation is that your fate is more and more intertwined with, with the fates of other players. And that's why it's in your interest to cooperate uh, towards solutions that benefit you all. Now, I, I think you're right that conservative realists have had a tendency to view things as zero-sum. However, if you look at uh, the book Politics Among Nations, I think it is, by Hans Morgenthau, who uh, is considered by some the founder of realism realist. certainly mr realism himself yeah yeah if you look in that book he says as technology changes it could well be that a realist could embrace world government he says that hmm. okay and that's what i would say is that technological change has made uh relations more non-zero sum uh relations among nations and and uh for that reason not not world government per se but more and more in the way of international governance mm -hmm. um is in order so lastly you know the reason that i i wanted to have you on to discuss this is not just because the ideas you know contained in your op-ed and in your other writing are, are interesting which which they are um but it's also because at least i've seen a greater um, acceptance and almost institutional support for some of the ideas of progressive realism coming to the fore. Now, it still stands outside the mainstream of U.S. foreign policy circles, but you have an institution like the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, which is mm -hmm. kind of this new think tank that articulates a lot of the principles that you just described that is a collaboration between you know George Soros of the left and Charles Koch of the right. Um, what do you sort of make of the kind of ecosystem of the U.S. foreign policy that's being built around these concepts and, and sort of what are you seeing happening on that front? Yeah, I'd say Quincy is kind of broadly realist. There are conservative realists there and, and there are progressive people I would call progressive realists there. And that in a way reflects, I guess, the two sources of funding that you referred to. Um, but I, I think, you know, one reason uh, realism is uh, having a kind of resurgence is because we have seen that, um, you know, idealism of, of a certain kind, of a kind of naive kind, can, can uh, have devastating consequences. I, I've, I've mentioned several of the uh, well-intentioned interventions um, that have gone awry. And I, I think that has, there's something that that has revived uh, in, that was originally, I think, uh, a big part of the idea behind the United Nations. You know, originally, uh, the United Nations 
attached a lot of significance to the sovereignty of, na of nations. Because at that point, the big problem was the recurrence of war. And so basically they said, look, you can do pretty much what you want to do in your borders. However, if you commit trans-border aggression, we're going to have a whole mechanism set up to punish you. Now, as time uh, wore on, um, and maybe because we started to take for granted the, 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 the success in that, you know, relatively speaking, the, the success of the discouraging of trans-border aggression, um, although that was probably largely a function of the Cold War as well. Anyway, there was, a re there, there was more and more uh, interest in the possibility of uh, intervention sanctioned under international law for humanitarian reasons. And that kind of culminated in the R2P, you know, the responsibility mm -hmm. to yeah. protect doctrine, which I think was invoked in, for example, the Libya intervention, yes. which, which did not go well. It was so, the only time it had been invoked to justify the military intervention under Chapter 7 of the UN Security Council it was the 2011 resolution uh, calling for intervention in Libya, which, you know, you mentioned earlier was initially intended to prevent a mass atrocity event in Benghazi at the time. Mm -hmm. um, at the time, you know, Gaddafi's forces were threatening mass slaughter of a large city. And this, this was like how R2P was supposed to work. Right. And, and... And so I think uh, you now have both on the left and on the right people, some people saying, well, you know, obviously, first of all, you know, there, there are uh, internal situations so grave that they warrant uh, intervention, ideally uh, with the sanction of international law, as in the, the Bosnian intervention in the 90s. But there, there are things so great, for example, Rwanda, where, you know, you, 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 if the Security Council wouldn't do it, you probably wouldn't 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 wait. If you thought there was something you could do to stop atrocities on on that scale. At the same time, uh, I think there is more uh, respect uh, for the way well-intentioned uh, interventions in in the internal affairs of countries can go awry. And so in that sense. There's a little bit of a return among some people to what uh, maybe the, the spirit of the uh, the original uh, founding of the United Nations. Um, I, I'm still, you know, uh, again, I mean, I supported the Bosnian intervention. It was sanctioned by the Security Council. Uh, and so I, I uh, but um, but I, I still think that that's one of the things that accounts um for what you're you're talking about. Um, and, and I guess I think also, and I think you've seen more of this at Quincy, uh, even than you did uh, during the, at, at the founding of Quincy not long ago, was um, is attention to the need uh, to get nations to cooperate to solve the various problems um, that I talked about and a recognition you know, that there's only so much uh, political capital you can burn up, uh, you know, lecturing countries about internal policies or uh, or, you know, sanctioning them or whatever, and still uh, get as much cooperation mm -hmm. as uh, the planet needs. Um, and this is, uh, you know, you uh, you mentioned my book, Non-Zero. Thank you. This is mm -hmm. Something I'm focusing on a lot in in the newsletter by the same name, Non-Zero, which has uh, which is the 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 center of what I'm calling only half jokingly the Apocalypse Aversion Project, uh, where where we we look at 
uh, you know, various kinds of uh, long-term, very serious threats to the planet. Um, not just the, some of the specific issue areas I've mentioned, uh, you know, bioweapons and, and, and climate change, but, but also the, the problem of human psychology mm-hmm. and the way, you know, cognitive biases uh, feed into uh, conflict that winds up being catastrophic and, and things like that. Well, everyone should sign up for your newsletter. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, it's what inspired me to reach out to you for this episode. Well, I really appreciate it, Mark. And, and I've become a fan of the podcast. Uh, and and um, I'm glad to see you flourishing. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Bob. And in addition to all of the books Bob writes and all of the newspaper opining he does, he is also the founder of a platform called Blogging Heads. And uh, this is a long-running public affairs show and now podcast. And before I started this podcast, I had a regular show on his platform in which we talked about uh, the UN. So I did that for, for many years in like the mid-2000s, late-2000s. It was interesting stuff, and uh, I've been a great fan of all of Bob's work since then. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.